0: Well, I realize it's been too long since I have made a Lord of the Rings reference, so here you go. <laughs> Today is is your day. Uh, this is not from one of the books in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but from one of the film adaptations uh, of the Fellowship of the Ring, and, and if you know the story, we have this young, relatively young for a hobbit, uh, Frodo Baggins, and he's been pursued by these these black riders, and he doesn't know why they're chasing him, but they are pursuing him, and and he makes his way to a city. He's looking for some kind of safety, and he runs into this kind of shady character named Strider, and and as he's confronted by Strider, uh, Strider says, "Are you frightened?" Uh, which is kind of funny because he sort of jumps out from the dark. Are you frightened? Uh, Yes. (laughs) He says, yes, I am frightened. And Strider says, not nearly enough. I know what hunts you. Now, today we are concluding our series through a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, a prayer that we call... The Lord's Prayer. So throughout this prayer, we have learned about who God is, uh, what he does. We've learned about his holiness, his reign, his kingdom, his will. We've learned about how to ask, how to open our hands and ask for uh, God's provision to meet our needs, about opening our hearts to receive his forgiveness and to learn how to extend that forgiveness To others, and as we saw last week, Jesus also teaches us how to pray for what is to come, to pray not just for the present needs we have for today, but to pray for what is in our future. So, we've been invited to pray and ask God to help us navigate the temptations, the trials, the difficulties that we will experience in our lives. So, today, as we conclude, this series, we see that Jesus also teaches us to pray for rescue, for deliverance from evil, from external forces of darkness that present real danger to us as we follow Jesus. And so Jesus finishes our instruction by teaching us to pray, deliver us from evil. So we will read Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13 together. This is on page 811 in the Bibles. It'll also be up on the screen. Jesus teaches us, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's word. Let's pray once more. Father, we come to you as your children. We recognize your power, your might, your authority, and we also are so glad to be graciously welcomed into your family through Jesus. Thank you for meeting our needs. Thank you for forgiving our sins through the work of Jesus on our behalf. And thank you for your protection, your care for us, even as we face great difficulties and evil. Show us the way of Jesus this morning as we learn from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to divide this last section of the prayer that Jesus has taught us into three parts, our adversary, our need, and our hope. All right, when we follow Jesus, we are choosing, whether we know it or not, and Jesus gave us plenty of warning here, we're choosing to walk a dangerous path, Um, like the, the hobbit Frodo, right? We just talked about him. We can sense the danger, something Is scary here. There's there's danger about, but as, as Frodo learned from Strider, the danger was even more serious than he knew. He was being hunted by something that was far more evil than he was aware of. In the same way, as Jesus teaches us to pray, he is telling us that we face a great adversary that we must be delivered from. Now, we have to take a minute, spend some time here. What is is Jesus really saying here? When he tells us to pray, deliver us from evil, what is he talking about? Now, there's two main interpretations when Jesus says, deliver us from evil. The first is that there is evil in a general sense. There's a principle of evil. There's a force of evil uh, that are external forces that oppose goodness, holiness, righteousness. So there's, there's evil as a principle or as a force. The second interpretation is that there is an evil one, a personification of evil who is called Satan or the devil. So in this interpretation, Jesus would teach us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Uh, This is the approach that the New New International Version, uh, other modern English Bible translations will translate this verse as deliver us from the evil one. So in looking at the whole scope of the story of God that's given to us in in the Bible, I tend to believe... uh, in that second interpretation, that Jesus is teaching us to pray for deliverance from the evil one. So it's clear from Scripture, it's clear from the history of the church that there isn't just evil in a general sense in, in the world, but that there is an evil one who is operating and trying to harness evil in specific strategic ways Ways. Now, we are modern people, right? We live in... The West, and so when we start to talk about Satan or the devil or demons or anything like that, we start to just back up a little bit and be like, "I'm I'm a modern person. I believe in science, right?" And and those are all just like myths and ways that people who didn't know what was going on tried to interpret uh, natural forces by giving them supernatural names or uh, or. Power, And so we can speak of good and evil in a general sense, but then when we start to talk about personifying evil or personifying good, we start to just go, you know, I don't know about that. They're, they're realities, but we don't want to like, give them any kind of specific representation that there's a personal being who is ultimately good and there's a personal being who is ultimately bad. And I, I even in myself, like, I've been a follower of Jesus for most of my life, and I still find myself drawn to this kind of explanation. I'm kind of a skeptical person. And so when people talk about ghosts, or they talk about evil spirits or curses, uh, and they, you know, campfire stories or whatever, I just kind of squint a little bit, a little side eye. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. That's okay. It sounds like you probably just um, just need to turn the light on or something. Uh, and, and so what? In recognizing in my own self those tendencies, you may have those same tendencies to be skeptical of these things, we must remember that, that as followers of Jesus, we can't just accept cultural explanations for things. Even or or especially when those explanations contradict or minimize God's revelation to us in the scriptures. We must be, we need to be shaped and formed by what God has given to us through his word. And it's clear, it's crystal clear in scripture that uh, the, the way God reveals these things to us is that evil is not just a force. Evil is personal. Evil is personal. We have an enemy. We have an adversary. We have a deadly predator who is stalking us. We are not nearly frightened enough because we don't know what it is that hunts us. Now, this is what Peter says in his first letter, Uh, Chapter 5, verse 8. We read this verse last week. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because science exists or there's a general force of evil. Uh, He says, be sober-minded, be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, this has never happened to me. Maybe it's happened to you. If you come across a lion in the the wilderness somewhere, you don't think, well, here is a general sense of danger. This is uh, uh, nature right here. This is nature happening in front of me. Um, This is a, a principle of predator versus prey or the food chain. You're not analyzing it. You are terrified because there is a lion in front of you. And if it's roaring, probably even more so. So in the same way, we can't think about evil without thinking about the evil one. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places we have an enemy, an adversary who wants nothing more than to destroy us. And this enemy is given a name or given a personification in the scriptures, Satan or the devil, depending on if you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Now, have you ever wondered why Satan is the adversary of people who follow Jesus? I mean, what did we ever do to him? (laughs) Right? Like, you guys can duke it out up there. Why do you got to get me involved? I don't want to be part of this fight. Why is Satan our adversary? And, and so to answer that, I think it's helpful for us to do a little biography here. Everybody loves an origin story, right? What's, what's the origin story of this uh, Satan fellow? Uh, and and the, <laughs> this is funny because we when you say the devil or you say Satan, like some image comes up in your mind and it's probably some goatee looking guy, right? He's got hooves, he's got horns, a tail, a pitchfork maybe. And, and even if we know that's not what's in the Bible, like it just has, we've, we've been infiltrated by culture and by literature and, and all these ideas of what or who Satan is. But what, is the, what does the Bible actually tell us about Satan? I don't think a lot of us have done a deep dive on, on Satan and try to figure out what the Bible actually says. So, so here's a brief overview. This, the scriptures tell us Satan was a created being, an angel who was made to serve God, to worship God like the angels are. They are servants of the Most High God created to worship and honor him and do what he wants. So after some time... Uh, an indeterminate amount of time. Satan rebels against God. The creator rebels against him. He wants God's glory for himself. He desires the praise that only God uh, deserves. He wants to be worshiped and admired in those ways that only God should be. And so Satan is cast out of heaven. He is cast out of heaven, banned and exiled from heaven. So, it's from this place of exile that Satan has hated God and opposed God and all of God's purposes, all of God's plans. The word Satan actually is uh, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but it's Satan in Hebrew, it actually means adversary. That's that's the literal meaning of that word, and that's really how the Old Testament speaks of Satan. Uh, so think about the way that Satan works in the Old Testament. At the very beginning of the biblical account, uh, we see uh, God makes everything, right? He makes all of creation. He makes it very good. It's beautiful. It's without blemish. There is no sin. And God creates men and women in his image to be in loving relationship with him, to walk with him, to be in Fellowship with them. And here's the birthplace of Satan's opposition to people who are created in God's image. Because Satan hates God, he hates anything that loves God or anything that God has made or designed. So Satan's God's adversary, and so he works to tear down, to destroy anyone and anything connected to God. So in the story of Genesis, Satan's tactic is deception, right? To, to go to Adam and Eve and to say, if you eat this fruit, if you do, if you cross the boundaries that God has given to you, you'll be like him. You'll be like God, which is ironic because in doing so, they become more like Satan, right? They, they've followed his pattern. They've listened to his deception. His hope is to destroy them to ruin their relationship with God, to bring them under his power. And this is what happens. This is sin. The curse of God's judgment comes. Death, exile, um, division, right? There's, there's this separation between God and man. And even as, as Adam and Eve, as they find themselves living under this curse of sin and death, Even in the curse that God gives to Satan, there's this promise there. There's this uh, this, uh, picture of what is to come. In Genesis 3.15, God says, "I I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then look through the rest of the Old Testament. What is the work of Satan throughout the Old Testament, to stop this promise from coming to pass, to make sure that this Savior who would bruise or crush his head would never be born. And it starts right away. Cain murders Abel, right? And then there's uh, the children, the child of Abraham, the son of Abraham, Isaac, who is hated and despised by his half-brother Ishmael. Uh, Israel is enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years, at one point uh, mandating the killing of all the male babies that are born, right, to eliminate these babies. Saul tries to kill David. Israel sent into exile, scattered throughout the nations. All through the Old Testament, the, the part of the work of the evil one is to stop God's plan of salvation through the promised Savior that he promised in Genesis chapter 3. D.G. Barnhouse, he says, Satan's enmity against mankind is in reality enmity against God because God has been pleased in his sovereign grace to plan salvation through the word made flesh. And Satan's primal hatred is therefore Christ. His hatred of mankind was first a racial hatred, blindly attempting to destroy all men that he might blot out the line of promise. What do these candles that we've been lighting each week remind us? That the promise held fast. Satan's plan to to work and to do everything he could to stop this promise from coming to pass, it failed. His work failed. Darkness did not overcome. The Savior was born to a virgin named Mary. But we know the evil one kept on trying. Matthew chapter 2 tells us that after Jesus is born King Herod in an effort to eliminate any threat to his kingship, he orders all the male children that are ages two and under to be killed in Bethlehem. What an awful, awful work of evil. And that's because of the evil one working to do what he can to overcome God's plan. In Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus grows up, the evil one takes on another tactic. I will tempt Jesus in the ways that I tempted that I've been tempting people all along to not believe God's promise to believe a lie in the wilderness. Satan's unsuccessful, so he tries another tactic to kill Jesus through Judas. Jesus is betrayed, Jesus is arrested, Jesus is beaten, crucified, buried. This is the work. All of this is the work of the evil one, the darkest of days. But what Satan thought was his victory was his ultimate undoing. Jesus conquers death. Jesus is raised to life on the third day. Jesus' heel was bruised, but in his resurrection, he crushes The head of the serpent, the evil one, Satan's plan to ruin God's plan of salvation is overturned, overwhelmed. As Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities, putting them to open shame, ridiculing their plans and their intentions by triumphing over them in him. And the picture in that that wording is of a triumphant general who is parading his prisoners of war through a town saying, they tried to oppose me, and this is what happens when you oppose me. You become an open embarrassment for everyone to see. This is what happened to Satan when he tried to overcome Jesus. And one day, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20 says. God's adversary will be eternally, completely, finally overcome, cast down. And that is God's promise to us. But until then, our adversary is working to do as much damage as he can Another picture, couldn't help it, another picture from the Lord of the Rings. Uh, You guys remember the the giant fiery Balrog uh, as he's trying to come after the fellowship, and he's cast down into the abyss. But what happens on the way down? He whips his fiery whip out and takes Gandalf with him, right, into the abyss. And this is... This is what Satan is trying to do. He's already defeated, but on the way into the abyss, he wants to take as many of us as he can. He works to tempt us. He works to deceive us, to try and separate us from God because of sin. Satan works to get us to buy into this lie that there's something better, there's something more pleasurable or good for us than what God has already done, that that God's holding something back from us and that we need to take it for ourselves. And this is really the primary tactic that our enemy is using against us to tempt us, to deceive us, because there's no basis in fact, right? We can factually say we know that who Jesus is and what he's done is always going to be better for us than the life that he calls us into. We know that it's always better for us But we are tempted, we are deceived, and when we take that bait, when we believe the lie, Satan's work then is to accuse, to accuse us, and that's what... Devil, uh, the word in Greek means accuser. The one who is the accuser, Revelation 12.10 12, 12, says he's the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of those who are walking with Jesus, accusing us before God day and night. You are unfaithful. You are a failure. You're not righteous. You're not good enough. You can't be in God's presence. Look at what you've done. He is An accuser working to drive us to despair, to give up, to think that we cannot be saved, that we could never live before God, we could never live with God, we could never be in fellowship with him in his presence. The devil is a deceiver, he is an accuser, and he also works to oppose the church of Jesus through persecution, Right? Through opposition, uh, the devil works to oppose the church of Jesus through the corruption of false doctrine and false gospels, false teaching. The devil works to corrupt the church through sexual abuse, uh, through abuse of power, through covering things up, through, through loving the applause and, and admiration of people more than the acceptance of God through domineering and abusive leadership, these are all what John Calvin calls the violent assaults of Satan. So it's clear, very clear from Scripture, we have an adversary, we have an enemy. And this, this reality, this truth, puts us in a place of need. We have a need. And I don't, I don't think I have to say too much about this because I've, I've tried to work hard to show you that we have a real enemy who can do real damage. And the scriptures never tell us that, that Satan is omniscient, that he knows everything, never tell us that he's omnipresent, that he can be everywhere, that he's, that he's all-powerful, that he can always do what he wants. Uh, Satan isn't God. They're not two equal forces fighting uh, and, and duking out, and we're not sure what the outcome is. We know what the outcome is. But, but Satan can still harm us. And at different points in your life of following Jesus, you will, you have faced this adversary, whether you knew it or not. So, so here's what we should not do when we are confronted with this reality. Uh, usually when I hear bad news or I hear about something that I have a need for, I get anxious, right? I'm not... Excited to hear about something big and scary. Not, not something that I really enjoy. But I want to encourage you to, to, to see this need that you have. But do not be anxious. In your, in your tendency and my tendency to become fearful, we, we think this enemy uh, is too, too big for us. And on our own, he is. We, we cannot stand against... Satan on our own all the time. But, but the beauty of the gospel is that we are not alone. We are not alone. Uh, in Luke uh, chapter 22, this is the night before Jesus is crucified, and, and Jesus comes to Peter. Listen to this. Jesus comes to Peter and he says, Satan has demanded to have you and to sift you like wheat. And this picture is of sifting wheat is to like violently shake something, right? So that the impurities are pulled out. Satan has demanded to have you and to do this to you, to violently shake you. I mean, that is terrifying to me. If Jesus, I'm praying tomorrow, and, and somehow the Lord speaks to me and says, Satan has demanded to have you. And to sift you like wheat? Not a fan. I'm going to say, can you deliver me from that, please? I don't want to be involved in that. But the reality is for Peter, he was sifted like wheat. He was violently shaken. He ran away from Jesus. He denies even knowing Jesus. He was a coward in the time of Jesus' greatest need for him to be a faithful friend. But what does Jesus say before that even happens? I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you've fallen, but you've turned back again, strengthen your brothers. Peter was tempted and he sinned, right? He, he fell into sin and he felt the weight of his sin. It says later that he wept in realizing what he had done. And he felt the weight of the accuser, right? Who would say, you're not worthy to be with Jesus. You failed. But he has this promise from Jesus. I have prayed for you. You will fail me. You will fail me. But your faith will not fail. Your faith will not be crashed up against the rocks and lost forever. And when you've come back to me again, go and strengthen the others who will have failed as well. We have an adversary. And we will fall. We will sin. But don't be anxious. You are not alone. You have Jesus' promise. And you have the community of Jesus around you, like Peter, to help remind you that we can turn back to Him and that our faith will not fail as we believe the good news of the gospel. Don't be anxious. Second response to this need uh, is, is, is I want to encourage you to not be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. When you're confronted with the reality that you have an adversary, don't be so proud as to think that you are strong enough to withstand his schemes on your own. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to cower in fear, but we also can't be so blind and proud as to think that we will always be able to stand against the pressure and the deception of Satan. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let anyone who thinks that he stands, that he's strong, but he will not fall. Take heed lest he fall. We are not as strong as we think we are. We we said this last week too, and and we remember that that quote from J.I. Packer, find out what for you is fire and don't play with it, right? So don't be arrogant to think that you'll always be able to stand against Satan and his deception. Don't Don't put yourself in positions or entertain scenarios where you will likely end up falling into familiar patterns of sin—the way that you've crumbled under the temptation of the enemy in times past. So don't be anxious. You're not alone. Don't be arrogant. You can't win alone. But then, when we when we do, what do we do with this need? That we have. So if we can't, if if we're not supposed to be afraid or anxious and we can't fight alone, how do we fight then? What do we do? We do what Jesus taught us. Shocker, right? We do, we do what Jesus taught us to do, and he's doing it here at the end of this prayer. We pray, we ask for rescue, we ask for deliverance. Deliver me from the evil one. Deliver me from the one who opposes me because I belong to you. And in this prayer, we find our deliverer in the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. Listen to this. We have guaranteed deliverance. So when you're anxious, you can look to Jesus and say, I have guaranteed deliverance because Jesus is my deliverer. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, The Son of God, Jesus, appeared to destroy the works of the devil, the plans of the devil, the schemes of the devil. Jesus came to destroy those things. Through Jesus, God has delivered us from the domain, from the authority, from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us, moved us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Your citizenship has been transferred. You have a deliverer. So when you are tempted, we look to Jesus who did not fail when he was tempted and we fight temptation in his strength, not our own, you will fall eventually when you try to fight temptation through your own strength, through your own willpower. But there is this promise in James chapter 4 that, that in the strength of Jesus that we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. When we do sin and we feel the shame of our adversaries' accusations, Jesus stands for us. And he defends us. When the devil holds up our sin, Jesus holds up his hands. They were pierced through. And he paid for our sin. Romans 8.1 Because Jesus has done this, there is therefore now no condemnation, no accusation that can stand for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we are sifted and violently shaken by our adversary, we hold on to Jesus. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus prayed for his disciples. And that means he prayed for you and he prayed for me. He says in John 17, I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus has rescued us from Satan, from sin and death. Jesus has strengthened us. Jesus stands for us and he defends us as our advocate. And Jesus keeps us. He preserves us. He protects us because he is our deliverer. And we've been invited into this life now. This whole prayer that Jesus has been teaching us. You have been invited, we have been invited into this life of, of being with God, our Father, through Jesus, to, to draw near to him, to continually live in his presence, to, to adore and enjoy and prefer him above all other things, to ask him to meet all of our needs, that there's nothing too big or too small for us to come to our father with that we can ask him for his pardon his forgiveness once and always and ongoing and we can ask for our protection lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil from the evil one and this is our privilege this is our joy as followers of Jesus so so here's here's the final encouragement for us as we, as we come to a close in this series, is, is for us, Town Church, to walk in this. Right? And, and I don't just mean like, go home and pray this prayer every day, which I think would be good if you did, but, but to take the things that we've learned, to take the things that God has shown you along the way about what it looks like to be with the Father through prayer, uh, coming near to Him and not having any hindrance. Just breathe in That freedom and walk in that freedom. Jesus has won this for us. Jesus has done what we could not do for ourselves. And so we get to live in that. That's our reality. That's our privilege that Jesus has given to us. And to this all we say, this is not actually in the biblical manuscripts, but it has traditionally been known as the ending of the Lord's Prayer. To you, Lord Jesus, belong the kingdom and the power and the glory both now and forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for your care for us, that, that just like your disciples on that hill that day when you taught us this prayer. You care so much about these questions that we have and the needs that we have and our confusion and our, and our concerns of the day. And you are so patient and gracious to teach us what it looks like to draw near the Father, uh, to come without uh, a ceremony, to come without um, some, something that we can give in exchange for your favor, your love that we just get to come as your beloved sons and daughters, Father, and, and to pray, to, to be with you, to linger with you, to express our love and our joy in you, and to bring all of our needs for protection, for pardon, for provision, all of these things before you, and to know that you hear them. You're not reluctant to give us these things, but you have open hands, and you've already shown us that through giving us your son, Jesus, and it's through his beautiful name that we pray these things. Amen.